You are listening to the Bellator Christi podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristi.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast. And this is your host for our time together today, yours truly, Brian Chilton. We want to remind you that the Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. And we do encourage you to go to the website while you're there. Uh, check out the articles uh, that are written by myself and, and some others. Uh, we have uh, Jason Klein who has written articles. We have uh, uh, my friend Shane. He's written an article or two there on the, pod, on the website. Also coming up, we have uh, special articles written by Dr. Uh, James Michael Castleton. Uh, he is, has authored a book and been on the podcast uh, before, and we hope to get him back on before too long. He's written a series that we'll be posting, hopefully, uh, beginning sometime this week, and so we'll be looking for that. I am actually in the process of uh, going through a series on uh, who wrote the uh, New Testament books. I'm going to hope to get later in this week maybe a link on the uh, website posted where you can find all of those articles in that series. And then uh, as well as um, uh, Jason Klein, he has some articles that he, he has writ- written, uh, and uh, we hope to have that on uh, very soon as well. And so uh, a lot of stuff going on at the Bellator Christie at bellatorchristie.com. And while you're there, we do encourage you to uh, subscribe to the website. It's just as simple as putting in your uh, putting in your email address and clicking subscribe. And by doing that, the advantage is that uh, you have you'll have a link sent to your inbox with all of the articles as they are posted as well as links to the podcasts as they become available as well you'll actually have first dibs on all the information because as soon as it's published 
it goes straight to your inbox. And the best part of it is it's absolutely free. So we do encourage you to take advantage of those resources at bellatorchristi.com. Bellator Christi, Latin for uh, Warrior of Christ. So we do encourage you to take advantage of that. Once again, that's at B-E-L-L-A-T-O-R, the name Christ with an I, all one word, Dot com. Go check it out. And this podcast is also available. You can take the podcast with you. It's available on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, as well as Google Play. So you can actually download these podcasts, take them on the go. In fact, I, I actually have it on my iPod. I'll uh, plug it into my car and listen to some of the podcasts, some of the interviews. Uh, to go, kind of like to kind of go back and listen to some of the interviews as we have uh, conducted them. Because as, as I'm producing these uh, recording and publishing these uh, podcasts, sometimes I don't get a chance to really uh, sink my teeth into the discussion as much as you do going back and listening to the dis- discussion. And plus, too, you, I'm able to critique myself, and you know, in the podcast. And uh, so, in the end, just uh, you know, we we have these uh, mediums available for you: iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher. Uh, as well as uh, Google Play, so you can take them on your go, on the go with you. And uh, we, you know, biggest the biggest thing we ask in return is that uh, you just share, help help us get the word out, and so we'd be greatly appreciative of that. Uh, okay, so a couple of uh, we have a lot of uh, interviews coming up this uh, this month. We have uh, we're gonna have with us next week, God willing, Mike Burnett of Moon Dog Radio. He's gonna be with us, and uh, he's gonna be talking about the importance of uh, Christians being in the media. And he's gonna explain to us a little bit about Moon Dog Radio. And so we encourage you to go check that out as well. And then uh, coming up week after that, we're gonna have Amy Downey back. With us, of course. You, if you remember, uh, Amy is uh, the founder. She's the first female PhD graduate uh, from the PhD program in theology and apologetics from Liberty University, as well as being the founder of Tezaka. Uh, ministry. So she's going to be with us. Of course, she's from. Uh, I hope I say this name correctly. Watchahachi, <laughs> Texas. <laughs> I figure I butchered that name, that the the name of that city, the poor folks of that city. Uh, I can't quite get your the name of your city correct, but anyhow. Uh, <laughs> but speaking of Texas, uh, we have a special. Uh, speaking of Texas, we want to extend our prayers and thoughts uh, to the individuals out in the Houston area. Uh, in around uh, that area, they are getting rocked, uh, or have been rocked by Hurricane Harvey. Uh, they, it's, it's the problem with this storm is not just the wind, even though it did become a, a major, uh, pretty major storm, pretty major hurricane. Uh, it dumped. The problem with this storm more than the wind was the fact that it uh, just stalled out over this area and dumped more than 20 inches of rain in some areas. Um, according to the New York Times, this was worsened by lethal, a lethal confluence of meteorological events, warm water in the Gulf of Mexico that intensified the rainfall, and a lack of winds in the upper atmosphere that could have steered Harvey away from land exacerbating the situation, so said Hal Needham, a storm surge expert and founder of the private firm Marine Weather and Climate in Galveston, Texas. 
was that the storm surge elevated Galveston Bay, blocking drainage of the rain that pummeled coast, coastal and inland areas. A two- or three-foot storm surge alone would not have been catastrophic, Mr. Needham said. It was all these ingredients coming together. Uh, David, uh, and it's not over, he says. David Feltgen, uh, Felt, Feltgen, a spokesman for the National Oceanic and uh, Atmospheric Administration's National Hurricane Center in Miami said that the driving rains would continue for another day or two. Of course, this is being recorded Monday after the hurricane hit, uh, pouring an additional 15 to 25 inches over parts of southeast Texas. Some areas, he said, could see as much as 50 inches of rain. And of course, as he mentions, this is unprecedented. So we obviously want to remember uh, the good folks down in Houston in that area, praying God being with them and help them through this uh, catastrophic disaster that has taken place uh, in one Hurricane Harvey. So uh, we, we certainly want to remember them and extend our sympathies to the good folks of Southeast Texas. Uh, today we have with us a special guest, and we're looking forward. I'm looking forward to this podcast. We have with us Adam Harwood. Adam Harwood is the uh, the associate professor uh, at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I believe that is the associate professor of theology. He's also the McFarland Chair of Theology, the director of the Baptist Center for Theology and Ministry, and the editor of the Journal for Baptist Theology and Ministry. Uh, he has been there since July 2013 up until the present time. Uh, again, that is at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, he has uh, he received his Ph.D. in theology from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, as well as his Master's of Divinity in Biblical Languages uh, there also at Southwestern. He uh, also graduated from the University of Central Oklahoma with a degree in history education, from, and, uh, and that was in Edmond, Oklahoma. So uh, it's going to be a joy and privilege to have with us at Dr. Adam Harwood. He is also the editor of the book Infants and Children in the Church. We'll hear more about that uh, coming up here shortly. Uh, we're going to be back with Dr. Adam Harwood after this quick commercial break. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. When I first wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict, truth wasn't so much an issue as what is truth, can you know truth, but now it is. Some of the issues are different because of the internet, like the claim that Jesus doesn't even exist. Are there other gospels that should have been in the Bible? Is Christianity just a copycat religion? So when we updated this, because I hear it from students so often, I thought we have to have the single best chapter that responds to this claim, and I think we do. We had to rewrite Evidence Demands a Verdict because there's so much new evidence out there. It's like one Greek scholar said, the evidence now for the scriptures is like a tsunami, an avalanche that is hitting, and we want you to be aware of that. We want every young person, every student, every pastor, every professor to be aware of the new evidence out there, to understand not just what they believe, but why 
they believe in. Evidence that demands a verdict. On sale everywhere October 3rd, 2017. Go to hashtag true evidence. for people from all around this great nation who believe this is a great nation. We're looking for the best and the brightest and people who believe in goodness and honesty and liberty. If we've just described you, enroll in Liberty University. Online, we've been doing it as long as anyone. Our campus, just beautiful. If you believe in liberty, know that liberty believes in you. Liberty University online or on campus. To find out more, go to liberty.edu or call 855-466-9220. Hi, Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. And at SCR, we have always cared about Christianity worth thinking about. And when I found out that the SES conference this year was about pursuing a faith that thinks... I realize that if you go to this conference, you're not only going to have the information you need to deal with people who challenge your convictions, you're going to have the information that will help you deal with the toughest critic you'll ever face, and that's you. That's why I hope to see you there at the SES conference October 13th and 14th in Charlotte, pursuing a faith that thinks. Register now for the National Conference on Christian Apologetics by going to conference.ses.edu. Early bird pricing ends August 1st, so be sure to go and register now. Once again, that's conference.ses.edu. The National Conference on Christian Apologetics 2017, October 13th and 14th at Calvary Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, pursuing a faith that thinks. And we welcome you back to the Bellator Christie Podcast. It is a joy and honor to have with us Dr. Adam Harwood. Uh, we have him on the phone now as he is uh, with us on the podcast today. Dr. Harwood, thank you so much for being with us on the Bellator Christie Podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Brian. Thank you. Well, as we ask all of our first-time guests, um, and and let me just go ahead and say you have an open invitation to come on the podcast anytime, anytime you would like. Uh, but but this being your first time with us, uh, if you would, sir, uh, sh- please share how you first came to faith in Christ. Yes, I had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home, and as your listeners may know, uh, that has an upside and a downside. And the upside is that I was protected from many problems and difficulties. The downside, uh, and also the upside, is I had repeated exposure to the gospel because I literally was in church three times a week, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, in Bible-preaching churches. Um, uh, The downside is a person in that situation can become callous to the gospel, and that's what happened to me. I became very uh, cold to the things of the Lord by the time I entered my teenage years, and callous. Uh, to the message of the gospel, just like fingers can become calloused uh, uh, when you work outside with uh, 
uh, in yard work, for example. Um, but thankfully, in the summer of 1990, at a uh, youth camp at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary up in Massachusetts, uh, God confronted me with my personal need for Christ and my personal need to repent of my sin, place my faith in Christ, and ask him to empower me to live out this Christian life, which I, I knew I would be unable to live. Uh, he, he broke me, and then he redeemed me, and I've, I've never been the same uh, since the calling to vocational ministry at that time, and uh, he has guided me uh, to serve him in, uh, uh, in those ways since then. Amen. Amen. We are we are both in uh, the the Southern Baptist Convention. It was a joy and honor to be part of that uh, that denomination. Um, in SBC life, there is quite a bit of discussion about traditional Baptists and Calvinist Baptists. And uh, for those, uh, you you are a professor in theology, and so you are the man when it comes to theology. And so this is a very important issue for for individuals in Southern Baptist life. So for those who may not know, what are traditional Baptists? And besides yourself, who are some of the more prominent traditional Baptists in our day? And of course, I think, you know, of the late, uh, great Adrian Rogers as being a traditional Baptist. So, so what is a traditional Baptist, and who are some of the influential uh, Southern Baptist traditional Baptists that we have today? Sure. I would begin by saying that Southern Baptists, like so many American groups, um, uh, people in that group resist being categorized, and so uh, I would say that there are more than simply Calvinist and traditional Southern Baptist, I wouldn't want to give the impression it was an either-or, because some people uh, see value in um, the views of both camps and wouldn't align with either completely, but uh, traditional Baptist is a term that was used by Fisher Humphreys and Paul Robertson in a 2001 book. Uh, they both taught at New Orleans Seminary at the time, and the book is titled God So Loved the World, and the subtitle is Traditional Baptist and Calvinism. And so it's a lay-level treatment of the differences between what they call traditional Baptists and non-Calvinists uh, and Calvinists. So some people may simply define a traditional Baptist in that context as a non-Calvinist Baptist. Uh, David Dockery used the term traditional Baptist in a 2008 book called Southern Baptist Consensus and Renewal, and there were a variety of Baptists uh, that he identified or types of Southern Baptists and traditional Baptist was, was one of them. Now this term became uh, a disputed term five years ago because in 2012, a pastor named Eric Hankins penned a document uh, that's titled A Statement of the Traditional Southern Baptist Understanding of God's Plan of Salvation. Now that, uh, that title is a mouthful, so it, it was quickly uh, referred to by people simply as the traditional statement. And so he wrote this statement, and it was a series of affirmations and denials, uh, which uh, was his attempt to uh, summarize what he believes the uh, traditional Southern Baptist understanding, meaning non-Calvinist Southern Baptist understanding of salvation. And it was circulated among some Southern Baptist leaders, and very quickly 
Um, the signatories included two SBC seminary presidents and several former convention presidents, as well as members of the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message Study Committee and professors from some of our seminaries and, and Baptist colleges, some state executive directors, evangelist pastors. Um, and so in simple terms, a traditional Southern Baptist believes, like uh, Herschel Hobbs, a Southern Baptist statesman and architect of the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message, as well as Adrian Rogers, who you mentioned, another Southern Baptist statesman, and he was the architect of the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message. Traditional Southern Baptists believes, like them, that God loves every person, Christ died for every person, and God desires to save every person. So the, the end result is anyone who hears the gospel can be saved. Mm. And that makes a very evangelistic uh, type of momentum going forward. It, it does, um, and that's, that's in no way meant to be a statement that Calvinistic Southern Baptists oh, yeah. are not evangelistic. Absolutely, because, absolutely. Because they certainly are. Um, but we think there's a stronger theological foundation for evangelism because I, I can say, affirming this view, and do say to people who are complete strangers, I say to them, God loves you, but you are a sinner and you're separated from a holy God. But the good news is God loves you too much to leave you that way. That's why Christ died for you. He came and lived and died for you and was raised so that if you repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ, you can be saved, and God wants you to be saved. And I can say those things in that language to people when I first meet them, and my Calvinist brothers and sisters can simply say, God loves sinners, Christ died for sinners, and God desires to save sinners. And uh, they mean by that, of course, the elect, and right. that's not what we mean. Absolutely. So, so the whosoever will, that becomes a big sticking point, perhaps, uh, between the two, the two convert, the two, the two, the, uh, the two groups, I guess you would say. It does. It does. Well, so, so who were some of the uh, more prominent uh, traditional Baptists or individuals who would uh, consider themselves to be traditional Baptists in, in modern Southern Baptist life? I tried to give you categories um, when you pressed me for names. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go ahead and name... Or, or maybe we should re rephrase it and saying le leans towards that perspective. <laughs> well, what I could do is name people who place their signature on the traditional statement. So they were, they were saying, this is what we believe, and it's Hankin's document of the traditional statement, and, that, and it affirms what I've described. That sounds good. And, the two seminary presidents were Paige Patterson, um, of, uh, president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, and uh, Dr. Chuck Kelly, president of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Some of the former convention presidents uh, would include uh, Patterson uh, himself, uh, just, just named, also Jerry Vines. Um, uh, let's see, the uh, members of the 
because Jerry Vines, uh, as well as um, uh, Paige Patterson, um, Paige Patterson, I uh, called together that, excuse me, let's see, uh, Patterson called to, together the committee, um, uh, Jerry Vines was on it, uh, Steve Gaines was on the 2000 Baptist Faith and Master Study Committee, he's currently the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, um, also he's in the same pulpit that Adrian Rogers uh, served, uh, Bellevue Baptist. And um, Chuck Kelly, who is uh, NOBTS president. Um, Roy Fish is a legendary uh, evangelism professor from Southwestern. He has uh, gone on to be with the Lord. He put his name on this statement uh, before going to glory. And uh, David Allen, who is um, dean of the School of Preaching, also at Southwestern. Uh, Keith Idle, who heads up the missions program at their school. Uh, Preston Nix, who's head of pastoral ministries and uh, teaches evangelism. Uh, there are many uh, evangelists who put their name on this. Uh, uh, Junior Hill, uh, Bobby Welch, I mentioned, who worked in evangelism uh, program in the 1990s. Um, Braxton Hunter and others who have served not only as evangelists, but also uh, president of the um, of Cosby, the group of evangelists and um, pastors and leaders around the country. And what I, in giving you these names, what I don't want to do is give the impression that because uh, I don't, I don't want to make a, a logical error in in saying, well, because uh, Paige Patterson believes this, you should believe it. Absolutely. However, uh, because there are so many. Southern Baptist statesmen and leaders who are comfortable affirming this statement, uh, I think what this does uh, is at least um, illustrates that the views that are articulated in the statement are probably widely held by other Southern Baptists. So uh, one of the criticisms of the traditional statement is, well, only 1,200 people signed it. Well, that's true, but... Uh, Please name another doctrinal statement that has 1,200 signatures on it. <laughs> uh, that's not something that we do um, as uh, American evangelicals, and um, uh, only the Baptist faith and message and, and maybe the abstractive principles could claim more signatures, and that's because uh, they've been around a long time, and to teach at seminaries and certain denominational entities, it's required that a person sign those statements, and this is simply voluntary. It simply um, uh, seemed to go viral when uh, people saw a statement that uh, affirmed a view that resonated with them, and they chose to put their statement on it, uh, their signature on it. Unfortunately, it did become a point of controversy because uh, many brothers and sisters in Christ uh, felt that this was an attack on their views because of some of the statements in the preamble, and some of them interpreted the affirmations and denials as characterizing their theology, when in fact it was simply meant to clarify uh, what we believe. Absolutely, and by and by asking that question, you know, I'm not trying to uh, just just to clarify for our listeners. I'm not trying to 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 make the issue divisive, but just to say, you know, because we we hear about many. 
who who call themselves Calvinists who were in Southern Baptist life. But I think sometimes we fail to remember that there are many who identify as traditional Baptists as well, and, and many very influential leaders at that. Um, now, looking at you know the traditional Baptist view, uh, how is original sin viewed, or or uh, the, the sin nature of, of people, the uh, of of mankind, uh, the, the influx of sin in a person's life? How is that viewed in uh, traditional Baptist life? And in fact, we had a good conversation on social media over this very issue, which kind of uh, jump started today's conversation. So, so how do you view original sin? That is the sin nature of man, and how would this differ? from what individuals would hear in the in the classic Calvinist decretal system. Yeah, very good, thank you. Um, the traditional statement has uh, in Article 2 an affirmation and denial that's it's just a few sentences, and so I'll read that. Article 2 is titled, The Sinfulness of Man, and it states, We affirm that because of the fall of Adam, Every person inherits a nature and environment inclined towards sin, and that every person who is capable of moral action will sin. Each person's sin alone brings the wrath of a holy God, broken fellowship with him, ever-worsening selfishness and destructiveness, death and condemnation to an eternity in hell. And now it's the denials uh, that um, is... uh, Um, Well, I'll read the denial to you. Uh, The denial is, We deny that Adam's sin resulted in the incapacitation of any person's free will or rendered any person guilty before he has personally sinned. While no sinner is remotely capable of achieving salvation through his own effort, we deny that any sinner is saved apart from a free response to the Holy Spirit's drawing through the Gospel. So, Uh, What I would bring to your attention is, uh, first in the affirmation, the language is very similar to the Baptist faith and message, and this was purposeful. Uh, The article on sin in the Baptist faith and message, which is Article 3 in the BFM, uh, identical in 1963 as well as 2000. So that means for more than 50 years, the confession of uh, the confessional statement of the Southern Baptist Convention has has affirmed that we inherit a nature and environment inclined towards sin. Right. So, so this um, this uh, this confession in the Baptist Faith and Message, as well as the traditional statement, doesn't say we inherit um, a sinful nature and the guilt of Adam. Um, the traditional statement simply goes further to say that uh, we reject the idea that a person is guilty before he has sinned. And so that's, that's the main difference. Um, the traditional statement also borrows this language of being capable of moral action. So the idea is that when a person is born, they are not yet capable of moral action. They inherit a sinful nature, a nature that has a bent towards sin, uh, but they are not yet guilty of sin. Adam's guilt has not been imputed to them. They are a sinner in the sense that they have a sinful nature, 
life, and early in life, they will become capable of moral action, they will sin, and it's because of their own sin uh, that God judges them. And so at the point that they come, become morally responsible and then commit an act of sin, either in thought or in, in their action or in their, uh, in their speech, uh, then God holds them culpable, not for the guilt of Adam, but for their own sin. So that's the distinction. That is different than uh, the Reformed perspective. So would you, would you say that the inclination to sin is what is passed on, but it doesn't become one doesn't become necessarily guilty until a sin is committed? Am, am I understanding that correctly? You are okay, because it's interesting. You know, that's interesting because a friend of mine, you know, and I didn't put two and two together. Uh, a friend of mine were actually were uh, we were actually talking about this same thing, and I and <laughs> I you know I it didn't make sense sense to me to say that a person had sinned unless the person had actually committed that sinful willing sinful action. So I th- I think there's a key distinction that that you made there that's very important for us uh, to understand. Now here's a here's a very important question I think we have in this discussion. What evidence do we have? Uh, for the traditional Baptist view in scriptures and even with the early church? Okay. Um, and, and this is regarding original sin? Yes. Uh, in, in, in original sin and even, uh, I guess, even the soteriological type of uh, uh, viewpoint that uh, whosoever will, if you want to go that route. Uh, sure. Uh, one way to do this is is um, uh, to ask the question uh, in the Bible: um, When does God hold a person accountable, uh, or for what does God judge a person? And it seems that in Scripture, God judges people for their own sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions. Um, this was true with Adam and Eve in the garden. This was true for Cain killing Abel. This was true for God judging humanity in the flood. This was true when God judged the, the builders of the tower. And that's just the chapters 11 through, uh, 3 through 11 in Genesis. But if you continue throughout Scripture, what you see is uh, God judges the Israelites for their idolatry uh, at the foot of Mount Sinai, Exodus 32, he judges Nadab and Abihu for offering strange fire, Leviticus 10. He judges the older generation of Israelites for believing the ten spies rather than God. That's Numbers 14. And that's a key text because, remember, the younger generation was permitted to enter the Promised Land, but the older generation would die off with only the exception of the two spies who believed God. Uh, so this is not to say that the age of 20 is the age of moral responsibility, but Scripture does mention in Numbers 14 and the parallel passage in, in Deuteronomy 1 uh, that those who had no knowledge of good nor evil, uh, that younger generation was not held accountable, and they were treated differently by God um, so that older generation was held responsible and judged for their actions. The younger generation was not. Um, the larger
larger point, I think, is that in Scripture, God judges people for their sinful thoughts, attitudes, and actions. And I could continue giving examples from the Old Testament and the New Testament. All of the biblical writers, uh, that God indicates that he will judge people for their, their actions. And, and so my response would be, please, please show me a text where a person is considered guilty because of Adam's sin. Uh, I think a, a key text that is raised is Romans chapter 5. It might be the most important uh, text when considering original sin. It's certainly the text that is um, cited most frequently in systematic theologies. Um, and the short answer on this is um, Romans 5, 12. Uh, through 21 says that sin, death, and corruption entered God's creation as a result of Adam's sin, but it never says that we sin in Adam, and it never says we're guilty because of Adam's sin. Those are interpretations that are drawn out from uh, Augustine's view or from covenant theology. Um, and of course, Augustine's view, he's relying on either old Latin or Vulgate translations that uh, we sinned in Adam, and that's actually not what the text says. The text says death spread to all men because all sinned. And there's a, there's a consensus on uh, the language of the text, even among those who differ with the interpretation. Wow, now that is a, a tremendous a tremendous point to be made there. So, so Augustine is developing his view off of a later translation when, when, when it appears that the autographs are giving and a different interpretation. That's correct. And, and let me also add this point uh, before it escapes my mind. This, this question of whether or not we are guilty of Adam's sin at birth is not simply a non-Calvinist-Calvinist distinction. In other words, this, this doesn't tele- identify you as a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist, depending on how you answer this. There are... There are people who would self-identify as being non-Calvinist on those particular points of theology who would say we're guilty of Adam's sin. Conversely, there are people who would line up even as five-point Calvinists in their theology. Um, but on this issue of imputation of guilt, they would say, uh, I, I differ on that point. Uh, we're not actually guilty of Adam's sin. There is a corruption that is inherited from Adam, but it's not actually guilt. We become personally guilty, which is basically the position of inherited sinful nation, uh, nature. It's, it's basically the position of um, the traditional statement and, uh, and some others. And I would refer you to your, your listeners to Donald McLeod, who is a uh, Scottish theologian, uh, well-respected uh, theologian. He contributed a chapter to a book that was published just a few years ago by Baker. The book is called Adam, the Fall, and Original Sin. It's edited by Hans Ladame and Richard uh, uh, Michael Reeves, and um, all of the contributors are writing from a Reformed perspective. So it's, it's no surprise when a non-Calvinist agrees with a non-Calvinist, but uh, when a Calvinist agrees with the non-Calvinist perspective, <laughs> or at least um, provides options that are consistent with non-Calvinist theology, I think, I think that's significant. So 
in his chapter, Original Sin in Reformed Theology. He explains that there are two views among Reformed thinkers on this, and historically that was the case. And one view is immediate imputation, and the other is immediate. And under immediate imputation, people inherit corruption from Adam, but guilt is mediated through one's own sinful acts. So guilt is mediated through their own sinful acts. Immediate imputation, think in terms of people are immediately guilty of Adam's sin. Adam's descendants receive an immediate imputation of Adam's guilt. So, so McLeod's point, which he establishes with the primary sources, is that uh, Reformed theologians historically were not united on this. Not all Reformed theologians said that people are born guilty of Adam's sin. This was a disputed point. Wow. <laughs> that, so, such an amazing point to be made there. Um, now, obviously, and, and this this may be twofold here. For for for, for non-Calvinists, uh, or, or or let me just say, my Calvinist friends will often bring up Romans nine um, and to to uh, defend the the Calvinist position. And uh, I have a couple of questions here. How would the traditional Baptist view election in passages such as Romans 9? And what would you say, and I'm kind of throwing a curveball if, if this is okay. So, so I've, I've, I always hear when we talk about these issues that, uh, that this makes the traditional Baptist guilty of Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. H- how would you respond to those two charges? Traditional Baptists, as well as other Christian groups, so traditional Southern Baptists aren't alone in offering alternate interpretations of Romans 9. There are plenty of other Christian groups who would uh, view election and text such as Romans 9 in other ways. And one way is, is to understand uh, the language of election as corporate, that uh, the elect is a reference to the people of God, but it's not talking about an individual being chosen by God from eternity for salvation, but it's God from eternity choosing a group. So that's the corporate sense. Um, others make the point that uh, in the Old Testament, election is about service. It's never about salvation. Mm. I mean, this is shocking. If you if you're to do a word study of chosen elect, election, chosen people, what you see over and over in Scripture is that um, this is about God choosing an individual, such as Abraham, to be uh, the father of this nation, so that this nation can be a blessing to the nations, right? So this is um, God's calling Abraham to service, and this is also true about David, when he's uh, called or chosen to be king, that, um, uh, of course, even pagans can be called or or chosen, um, such as King Cyrus, who is called God's anointed, his his chosen. And so God selects people for service, and he selected Israel for service. They had a a vocation. It was to be the light to the Gentiles, according to Isaiah. And so, uh, again, in the Old Testament, if you were to study election, and this point has been observed uh, by many people, 
either he had an Old Testament background as his understanding of election, or there was something completely new that God was doing, and he was revealing it through um, uh, through Paul, and it was discontinuous or, or not consistent with God's revelation in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Chad Thornhill is chair of uh, theological studies at Liberty University School of Divinity, and um, he wrote a book titled The Chosen People, IDP Academic 2015. We hosted him at our seminary a couple of years ago to speak about that book. Um, it's fascinating treatment because he examined the literature between the Old Testament and the New Testament for clues on how to understand the doctrine of election. And um, he also wrote the, uh, the entry on the doctrine of election in the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Uh, he's also written some other things, but specifically he's done a lot of work on election. And, and uh, he, he, makes the, um, uh, he makes the case that in addition to um, uh, unconditional election to salvation, which is the Calvinist view, and conditional election to salvation, which is the Arminian view, Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> 
Now I'm, I, I love that I love that you mentioned Dr. Thornhill. Uh, Dr. Thornhill was actually uh, my my professor of New Testament Greek uh, at, at Liberty whenever I was going through the uh, Master of Divinity program, and he actually served as one of my references uh, as I as I've just begun st- today. The twenty eighth marks the official, first official day as I started the PhD program, also at Liberty School of Divinity. So so big shout out goes to Dr. Thornhill on a gr- job well done. Uh, for his book. Um, couple of, Congratulations on your studies. Let, can I answer the semi-Pelagian? Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, go right ahead. Yes. Um, so one of the early charges of, that were uh, levied against the traditional statement was that it seemed to affirm semi-Pelagian views. And uh, I, I wrote at length to answer in detail that question, and so I will refer your listeners to an article that can be found online, and it can also be found uh, in print in a recent book. And so if they were to just Google the question, is the traditional statement semi-Pelagian with my last name, Harwood, then you should be able to find that in an issue of the Journal of Baptist Theology and Ministry. So there were two volumes that we dedicated to examining the traditional statement, and there were essentially commentaries that were written to explain and defend each of the ten articles. Plus, there were two articles that were included in the journal, one written by a Calvinist, one written by a non-Calvinist, who both uh, did not support the theology of the traditional statement or couldn't sign the traditional statement. So uh, in the journal, there was an effort to um, hear from all perspectives, not only those advocating for the traditional statement, but both the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist that are, um, uh, would not sign it and saw it as problematic. But in, in that journal, as well as in a book that was published last year, uh, the book is titled Anyone Can Be Saved, and the subtitle is A Defense of Traditional Southern Baptist Soteriology. It was edited by David Allen of Southwestern Seminary, Eric Hankins, the pastor who drafted the traditional statement, and and myself. And, and I contributed this article, Is the Traditional Statement Semi-Pelagian? And basically what I did was pulled... Uh, definitions of semi-Pelagianism from major published theological works, including uh, those that were published uh, from a Calvinistic perspective or reform perspective, and uh, laid those against the traditional statements, and um, it was determined um, that uh, there's nothing in the traditional statement that according to the, those definitions of semi-Pelagianism would mark it as such. Basically, those um, sources were saying that, uh, that uh, semi-Pelagianism is um, moving towards God by human efforts without God's grace. Right, right. And the traditional statement never makes a statement like that. In fact, it goes out of its way, states repeatedly, that um, salvation is provided by God's grace, God takes the initiative in providing the atonement, God calls people to salvation uh, by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel, uh, just repeatedly, there's the Spirit's work that's mentioned and grace that's needed. Uh, And then I also deal with the Second Council of Orange, uh, because uh, some have raised that, and 
also um, respond to Roger Olson, who made a remark in his blog about the traditional statement, and I suggest um, that, uh, uh, well, I interact with his view. And so uh, they, they can meet, read more about that. But the, but the bottom line is, no, the traditional statement is not set on Pelagianism, and um, uh, that's it. That sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, we are actually running out of time here. I just want to just want to give just a, a brief moment. Are you are you confident in you are you confident are you optimistic rather that Calvinists and traditional Baptists can work together in the Southern Baptist Convention? Yes, Baptists have worked together for four hundred years. Southern Baptists have worked together since eighteen forty five. Uh, we've always had two major streams. If you if you want to call them Calvinism and non Calvinism. Uh, as long as we're united in declaring every person's need to repent and believe in Christ for salvation, then these differences shouldn't be a problem. Amen. Let me just give you a, another moment here, and I'm so, sorry we're running down on time. This was such a wonderful interview. We've got to get you back on if we can. Uh, you have a new book out uh, that you edited called Infants and Children in the Church, Five Views. Uh, what can our listeners expect to find in that new work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Uh, there are some books that address theology and children, and then there are others that deal with ministry with children. We try to do both theology wow. and ministry with children from a variety of perspectives. So we, we have a Roman Catholic, an Eastern Orthodox, Reformed, Lutheran, and Baptist contributor. And it's a multi-views book in the sense that each one of those contributors answers the same theological or ministry question. Or, uh, either on original sin or infant salvation or entrance into the church or discipleship in the church, those four issues. And then we respond to one another, and the reader can see the similarities in some of the views, and they can see some of the differences in some of the views, and that can help the pastor or children's minister or, or parent who wonders, why did the churches down the street baptize infants? but for different reasons, and also if we don't baptize infants, for example, how do we affirm the worth of uh, children before God, um, and what are the biblical theological issues involved, and how do you disciple your kids in the church, and so forth. So really excited about that. The co-editor is Kevin Lawson, who's a professor of education out of Talbot School of Theology, Biola in California, and he has a lot of experience uh, in the field of children's spirituality, and uh, that book Infants and Children in the Church will be released, I believe, in November by B&H Academic. Awesome. So be sure to go get your copy of, of the book uh, Infants and, uh, let me make sure I say this right, Infants and Children in the Church. And this is presenting five views. So be sure to pick that up this November. Dr. Harwood, thank you for being with us today on the podcast. And I hope it's where we can get you back on very soon. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. For Dr. Adam Harwood, this is Brian Chilton. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of bellatorchristi.com or its affiliates. 
The Bellator Christie Podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com and is protected under Creative Commons copyright. All rights reserved. The theme song is Crucified, written by John and Michaela Lemonese, performed by Crosby Lane, and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit bellatorchristie.com and subscribe so that you can receive all the articles and podcasts in your inbox for free. Catch us on iTunes, TuneIn, and Stitcher. For Brian Chilton, this is Burl Childers saying God bless, and we'll see you the next time as we enter into the arena of ideas.